Hi, everyone. This is Dawn Richard, also known as The Awakening with Dawn, and this is the Wake Up to Real Love podcast, where we share stories of struggles and triumphs in love, sex, and relationships, along with expert advice to create more conscious connections. I'm super honored and excited today to welcome my guest, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Welcome, Dr. Alexandra. It's so good to be with you, Dawn. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here. You um, are an amazing woman period. Uh, mm -hmm. You are a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University, a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University, a regular contributor at Psychology Today, and author of Taking Sexy Back, How to Own Your Sexuality and Create the Relationships You Want, as well as the other amazing book, Loving Bravely, 20 Lessons of Self-Discovery to Help You Get the Love You Want, which was featured on the Today Show. She's an international speaker and teacher whose work has been featured on six continents. This woman is amazing. We're going to have a, such a fantastic conversation. Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you. I'm glad that we get to do this this morning. Yay, me too. Um, okay, so my first question is the little icebreaker, and I wanted to just talk about how um, I think it's so great that you and your daughter did all those masks over this pandemic. Yes. Yeah, I had just seen somewhere on Facebook that our healthcare workers are having the experience of their ears getting sore. You know, like uh -huh. your mask just kind of hooks in over your ears. Uh -huh. And at the end of a 12-hour shift, your ears are just raw and, and in pain. And so a gal had um, taken a headband and sewn two buttons on, and now she hooks her mask around. And so I was like, okay. You know, and I think that one of the one of our least favorite feelings as human beings is to feel helpless. And so yeah. I'm aware that my best work is to stay home, right? I am not a frontline worker. So my best work is to stay home, but staying home can feel really helpless. And it can feel really like kind of guilty about my privilege and all of that kind of swirl. And so this has been helpful. So my daughter and I, as you say, we've been tucking in on the couch at night and we sew bands and we've so far delivered about 300. Oh and, my gosh, that's incredible. Yeah, um, we've got another batch ready to go pretty soon. Um, and you know who it was a funny connection is Leah Marshall, who is the who created the Esther Perel discussion group that Which you and I how we met. Yep. She's a Chicago gal. And so she bikes up from the city and delivers me more, more buttons. So she's my button gal. So she gets me the <laughs> buttons and then Courtney and I sew them into these headbands and we are gonna we're gonna make a batch for our local grocery stores as well pretty soon here but um we've been prioritizing our hospitals especially our covid we've got a hospital in the area who's who's um all covid now and so we're making sure the bands get there so it's it's felt good what a beautiful gift thank you very much well thank you for bringing it up thanks yeah. for bringing it up it's sort of yeah. yeah. So, um, so how did your daughter, I remember seeing a picture on Facebook of your daughter having the book open, taking sexy back. And I thought, is she really reading that? Because after, <laughs> after I read it, I, you know, presented it to my almost 17 year old daughter and she's like, I don't want to read that. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about that. No, right. <laughs> Oh, no, she's not gotten very far. <laughs> how, how old is she again? She's only 15. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to ask you, you know, everybody hears about sex through different ways and means, right? So how did you, how did you hear about sex? What did you learn about sex growing up? Right. I remember, I feel like my sex education was relatively neutral. I certainly feel grateful that I had never gotten some of the messages around um, purity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the book, we talk about many, many people who grow up in more conservative, especially Christian conservative communities grow up with these object lessons where the teacher will take, for example, a piece of tape and everybody sticks the tape to their arm. And it mm -hmm. kind of shows this idea that you lose your ability to bond if you have multiple sexual partners, or they will um, um, rub something all over the ground and put it in dirt and sort of show that this is who you become if you've had sex. So wow. I didn't have any of those common and directly shaming messages around sex, certainly. I had a pretty basic biological education, and yeah. then I had a lot of silence, and I filled in the silence. You know, I was fascinated by this whole 
world of, of not just love. I, I was fascinated by love and relationships, certainly, but I was also fascinated and curious about sex. And I would read these romance novels, these Victoria Holt and Sidney Sheldon, these romance novels with these just really powerful, you know, sex scenes that were not, they were probably more lusty. You know, be like more lusty. exact lusty is the perfect word. Uh-huh. And, um, and it was just really, I was really pulled in by that, but also feeling like, how does that fit with my sense of myself as being strongly invested in being a straight A student and a good girl? And, you know, so I think I just grew up with, a, with sort of um, sex being kind of over here, like not really fitting in with the rest of, of me. Yeah, I experienced something quite similar. You know, my, my parents, I was uh, raised Catholic. And so, you know, it was basically like sex is for marriage. You know, you, mm-hmm. you wait till you get married to have sex. I mean, my, my parents got married when they were 20 and 21. So, you know, it was easy, easier to wait for them, you know? <laughs> and so, yeah, you have all these conflicting messages of when and where it's appropriate and who it's appropriate with. And, you know, so, so take me sort of along this journey, because I remember also hearing you say that you used to, um, you know, hide and listen to Dr. Ruth. Right. And, and it felt like something I couldn't, you know, yeah. something I couldn't share with anybody, but that was right. I had a Walkman because it was the eighties <laughs> and I would do it. And I was just fascinated that there was this whole world of people who would call in and ask her these questions. And she would, she was funny and she was irreverent and, um, and I'm really grateful that I had that experience. I'm, I'm like grateful that nobody shamed me out of it. Right. That, um, how many, people, found how out. many people did you tell? Right. I told no one, but if I had been caught, like my mom came and like peeled the comforter back, you know, <laughs> if that didn't happen. I'm glad it didn't happen. You know, I never was made to feel, I, I got to just have that be a part of me. I mean, it was definitely like sequestered over here, uh-huh. but it wasn't anything that I was made to feel badly about. Nobody knew. So therefore nobody could make me feel badly about it. But then I had also this group of girlfriends that we actually, we have a, a phone call schedule for tonight. These have been my girls since one, since kindergarten and two since fifth grade. And so wow. all came of age sexually together. And so every first kiss, every, you know, first, whatever <laughs> we were there breaking it down and talking it through. And that's really, that was really my sex education was, um, with my girlfriends and talk, making sense of the experiences that we were having together and laughing and crying. And, um, we had no, we couldn't Google anything. Right. So we were just sort of <laughs> figuring it out Sitting with it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, and that, I think that remains, you know, the women, the young the young women I spoke to as I was working on the book shared that as well, that they're, many of them had their sex education filled in by their, by their girlfriends, you know, Mm. and that's, and I think that's beautiful. And I think I worry actually that, that men don't have that in quite the same way. I think I'm sure there are groups of men who can talk that through, but we, it wasn't, we wouldn't tell each other our stories to brag really. It was just kind of to have, each other bear witness to our experiences, you know? Yeah. And, um, Say, is this okay? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And has this happened to you? And yeah, what uh-huh. do you think? Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, because I, I feel like most men, they're just, they just have the locker room experience. Hey, you know, mm-hmm. I got it. Or, you know, and it's just mm-hmm. like, they don't really talk about the reality of it. Yep. Yeah. And I don't, and I, I don't want to sell men short or make assumptions. I'm sure yeah. there are communities of men that have really heartfelt conversations, but I, but what I mostly hear is that, is that no, that that's not really, that's, that's not, there's not permission to feel right. confused, to have questions, right. to be concerned, to feel self-conscious, to feel insecure that that, if there were those feelings, which of course there are those feelings, there's not a single person who doesn't feel insecure and vulnerable when it comes to sex. Yeah. Um, at least the least we can do is have spaces to give voice to our insecurities and have other people nod and, you know, hold eye contact and say, yeah, I, that makes sense. I get that. Yeah. So what did, what did you learn from Dr. Ruth? <laughs> I don't know specifically. I feel really grateful that my, you know, my, my, my husband who I've been with now for over two decades that we just, I feel grateful that we really found our way 
together. You know, we've been together for a long, long time, really mm-hmm. most of our adulthood. And, um, and that we found our way together. And, um, and I'm aware that even though he's been my sexual partner for decades, it still feels vulnerable to talk mm-hmm. to him about sex, right? It's one thing to talk to you. And right. it's another thing to talk to the person with whom I'm being intimate. And so I'm aware of that, that there's, there's these, there's one, it's one thing to have the conversation in the abstract or to talk about sex. And, right. and it is seriously next level to talk to the person you're having sex with about the love you're making, you know? Well, because, because you, you know, you really are naked <laughs> and come, you know, coming to the person completely vulnerable, whether it's mm-hmm. inside the bedroom or outside the bedroom, these are like your deepest innermost workings and longings that, you know, generally for most people, we weren't granted permission to acknowledge or express. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. And you talk, you talk a lot about that in the book. Absolutely. And I think that was, you know, I think whenever somebody commits to the process of writing a book, it is a profoundly growing and healing experience. And mm-hmm. I'm aware that the that writing Taking Sexy Back opened conversations between my husband and I that we hadn't had before. Mm-hmm. It's opened, it has been, I think to I think for a reader, it's an incredibly permission-giving book. But I think as the writer, it was an incredibly permission-giving book. I have never felt so connected to my clitoris and my, you know, like it just was like doing all that research about, oh my gosh, like what have we as a world done? around female pleasure like we have really really marginalized and silenced and tried to just not even look at what's going on with um with our genitalia our clitoris like that is that was a fascinating uh, it was a fascinating nexus of where my passion about psychology spirituality women's studies politics yeah it all came together all in this tiny, right, this like relatively small sexual organ. But it is the the story of the clitoris is the story of generations of marginalization of the feminine and and contempt of um, of feminine pleasure. Really, yeah, really. I mean I, the the fact that that the first researcher to actually publish in 1998 was it. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. It was literally, so, so a, a gender studies professor went through, you know, went through the archives of medical anatomy textbooks and basically found that for generations of these textbooks, the clitoris was just like blurred out, omitted, not even part of the, when you think about the diagram, you think about the sort of the female um, genitalia diagram, you mostly think about the one of the insides of our bodies, right? right. The uterus, the fallopian tubes, the <clears throat> ovaries, which again, sort of holds up the idea that those parts of our bodies are for reproduction, you know, kind right. of reinforces that idea right. Right. versus a diagram, which would be more looking at the external female genitalia, which is really where pleasure at least begins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that those diagrams were, that the clitoris was left off of that. And as you're saying, that it wasn't until 1998 that the first female urologist in Australia, Helen O'Connell, mapped the full anatomy of the clitoris and, and that it is not just the little, just the relatively, the, it's not always little in everybody, but the, right. the part that we right. see on the outside is just the glands, but the organ itself continues. It's you know usually about four inches worth on the inside with erectile tissue and these legs that extend deep into the pubic bone and um, just it's, kind of it's the tip. It's the tip of the iceberg. It's the tip of the iceberg. That's right. Right. <laughs> so that's right. And, and how fascinating that nobody that for years, it was just sort of like, well, the female orgasm, who really understands it? And it's a mystery, but it's a mystery if you don't ask about it, if you don't inquire, if you don't go looking. Well, and, and I think, I think that's part of why it's so um, hidden because it is hidden, you know, and men, you know, and men, their penis is out there for them to see, for them to touch. But women, you really have to, you know, who's, who stood over a mirror. This was one thing that I, 
I, that uh, book, Your Body, Yourselves. I our Body and Ourselves. Our, bo- our right. Bodies, Ourselves. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, I could do that. Like, I can actually see it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yep. And the more that we, you're right. So there is, there's that, sort of that barrier. But even the idea of getting a mirror and looking at ourselves feels sort of, um, it just feels embarrassing. Sort of like, yeah. But, and then that reaction, right, to have that reaction about our own bodies, like just that, just that squirm or that tensing up, that is the, the sort of micro first step towards yes. how we exit ourselves, isn't it? Yeah. Because if I can't feel deeply grounded and connected to and proud of that part of me, I have no platform from which to generate sensation, invite my partner in, in a really excited way. So it, it's really sad that we, I think also about, um, my son the other day said the word, uh, douche. He was, you know, referring to his watched yeah. a YouTube video yeah. and somebody yeah. was douchebag. I was like, do you, can I just tell you? Can, my my can kids you, use that word all the time. He's that, yeah. Can I tell you what that word means? Like what that is? And I talked to him about like, this whole industry that was built on the idea that women's Women's private areas need more than just vulvas. Vulvas, you can say vulva. The vulva needs more than just soap and water, water. which again sends this message that there's something very dangerous, very dirty, quite you know, sort of off limits about that part of our bodies, and that's so sad. Uh And it and it helps us understand why it's so pervasive that women struggle to have orgasms, um, have uh, experienced sexual desire, feel permission to masturbate, that women just go into the bedroom really, really, really um, quite oftentimes without the information and kind of gentle, loving connection with their bodies. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's not just our um, sexual anatomy. It's, it's disconnecting from our entire bodies, mm. you know, because we have all of these cultural messages. I mean, did you see that Cynthia Nixon video? Was it girls about girls? Yeah. Mixed messages. You have to be sexy and you can't be sexy and you have to do this and you can't do this. And you, you know, it was like, no wonder we have so much um, confusion and um, just confusion. (laughs) Right. And, and, and an absence of sort of like a cohesive narrative. This is who I was. This is Uh who I am. This is who Uh I get to be. And without that sense of like, this is me, this is who I get to be without that sort of wholehearted sense of who I get to be from the in what we work on in the book is sort of this inside out definition of my sexuality, my sexual self, my sexual journey without that inside out experience. We don't, we're not grounded then to advocate, to collaborate with a partner. And so it means yeah. we're going to have shitty sex. And the more you have shitty sex, the more you don't want sex. Who wants something that kind of feels like, okay, but I could have made 15 more headbands during that time. <laughs> <laughs> you know? What <laughs> color do I need to paint the walls? Yeah, that's right, right, right. What's my next book going to be about? <laughs> you know, if, that's, if, if it doesn't feel like an inherently rewarding, motivating experience, we're not going to be, it's going to really compromise our desire for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, um, so I, I listened to your live from Friday and I was in the car on the way home from my son's house and I started crying. I started crying because this, you know, you talked about, um, big T trauma and little T trauma, you know, that women, and, and I hold this because I, I feel like I carry this collective thing for women about all the ways that we've been hurt um, and judged and shamed based on our gender, based on, based on our sexuality. So it's like, we've either been objectified and used for being female and feminine or, um, or we've been hurt, really hurt, yep. really hurt and violated. So I wanted to say, you know, I honor all the people, all the people who have been hurt through their sexuality. And I think that this is really important to help people heal 
because it's like that's when people disconnect, right? Mm -hmm. And so this whole process of healing and really learning to reconnect to our bodies and reconnect to our sexuality, I mean, that's why this book is so, like I'm getting chills. <laughs> um, this book is so profound. Yeah. It, um, it, is, it is, yes, I mean, thank, I mean, thank you for saying that. I, um, it is, it is incredible what, um, what survive, like the, what, when survivors share their stories, yeah. how that is a piece of healing. And when survivors have the courage and the support and the readiness to go inside and reclaim their bodies and their pleasure, that is just so mighty. And it is so, um, any survive when a survivor does that, she offers healing to herself and she offers healing to the collective. Because as you're saying, there is a way that just the experience of, of to be born female is to be born into a sort of lowercase t trauma, mm -hmm. right? Where one of my students gave me the example of um, being told when she was a little girl, when she you know came downstairs in an outfit, she was told that she was dressed too sexy. And she didn't understand what that meant, like too sexy for what? But that was sort of a first step of, of basically her, her mom or her parents saying to her, like, your body is dangerous. Your body is, is dangerous just as it is, right? Just the nature of presenting yourself in a female way, owning any aspect of sexuality puts you at risk and how incredibly true that is and how incredibly sad that is. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you're, I mean, my daughter said the other day, like, you know, I don't really want to, to take public transportation home at night because yeah. I am at risk. And so, you know, as, as female or, uh, you know, I mean, showing up because most of these things happen, you know, in a power over sort of way. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, how do we show up in the world standing fully in our power? Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. That's right. Well, it's, it's why it was essential to me to write a chapter for men who were either reading this book uh -huh. or who were partnered in some way, whether it's, you know, intimate partnership or friendship, you know, whatever relationship it would be, men partnering with women who are doing this healing and reclamation work. I really wanted, because we can't do it alone, right? We can be as full of our power as we want, but until mm -hmm. and unless men are holding space, and allying with us and partnering with us and looking at all of the small and huge ways that rape culture perpetuates in our culture, we were just spinning our wheels, right? We really, really need men to partner with us. And, and it is for, for multiple reasons. For one reason, I think it's heartbreaking. The more women live in really understandable, legitimate fear, mm -hmm. the more men don't get to step fully into their love and their sensuality and their erotic because they are at risk of being experienced or experiencing themselves as dangerous, right. predatory, right. and threatening. That right. is the thing I hear over and over from the young men I work with especially is just a profound fear of being creepy, a profound fear of making a woman feel scared. Mm -hmm. And that's real. And I and I am and it breaks my heart, right? That a man couldn't fully express his love, right? His love, his interest for fear of doing harm. And I, I'm, I'm so glad that I am surrounded, that I get to hear about men who are so conscious and so not wanting to create harm, uh -huh. but it just, it speaks to the deep need to kind of like reset and how we all have a part to play in that, you know? Yeah. How we all, because it, because I feel like there's, you know, there's this dynamic of power over, mm -hmm. it, power over as opposed to showing up equally powerful. Sure. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and both people feeling what, you know, whether this is a, a Safe. same sex or heterosexual encounter, both people feeling really deeply authorized to create a sexual experience together. Mm -hmm. um, when, um, like there's a, a men's group on campus at Northwestern that does sexual assault prevention in fraternities and um, sports on this for the sports teams. And when they talk about consent, 
you know, we are luckily moving away from this like no means no definition of consent. And so the uh -huh. image that they use, I love, they, they work with the, the male students around defining consent as like a jazz improvisation, you know, where you're just sort of like riffing off each other. And it's not fun. It's not fun to just have your instrument and play it the way you want to play it. What's fun exactly. is dipping into like putting something out there, seeing what happens with it, throwing it back to me. I throw it back to you. Like that's the riffing and the improvising and the keeping an eye on each other that's what makes sex so beautiful. Those are the most beautiful sexual experiences, right? Is where it's just, okay, but what about this? Okay, fun, but what about this? You know, where it just is, there's that nice flow that can only happen, as you're saying, when both people feel empowered, when both people feel able to hold power. Well, I, as you were saying that, I, I, I thought it's both people feeling really powerful as well as both people feeling completely safe and vulnerable yep. to open up in that way. Because I know, you know, I mean, you talked in the book about the hookup culture and it's like, and that's not just for, you know, college age kids. No, not at all. It's, you know, it's worldwide, the hookup culture, because people show up, I feel like in an unconscious way, you know, mm -hmm. it's not about, necessarily a connection it's more about i'm going to use you to fulfill this need that i have you know and so i think it's really important to start having all of these conversations i mean this is one of the things that i tell my kids it's like if you can't talk about sex with the person that you're going to have it with then perhaps you shouldn't be having it with them yeah and not from a place of judgment but just in no. terms of like a, a gut check right that that's a really pretty clear gut check that yeah. you aren't quite safe that something within you or in the space between you isn't quite safe enough to be emotionally vulnerable mm -hmm. and and emotional vulnerable it, emotional vulnerability is a pretty key ingredient to to good sex to good sex that because a lot of people have a lot of sex but sure. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Cause without, without emotion, without the ability to be emotionally vulnerable, sex becomes either performance. Right. Um, or a duty. Uh huh. And I think a lot of, um, a lot of people show up. I mean, you, you told a story on Friday about how, how this young man, was saying he didn't want to be, you know, show up as the promiscuous, you know, male and yeah. gay male. And, um, you know, so we have all of these, all of these things that we need to unpack. Right. Right. Where we are, where are so often our sexual choices are basically a point or a counterpoint in relation to a fearful story, right? So that example was a young gay man who, you know, finally comes out, he begins to live his truth, but then the next sort of thing he bumps up against is, a, is who, do, who does he get to be in the sort of hookup culture? Like in his, in his mind, if he started to, if he were to make out with a guy at a party, he would feel tremendously ashamed of himself because he felt like he was just then the stereotype of the promiscuous gay guy. So here right. again, it's like he bumps right up against this idea of this sort of imagined audience of people who would be judging him um, because of his sexual behavior. And so then, so, so it's like this way in which our sexual self is constantly morphing around these feared ideas of who am I if this happens? Who am I if this happens? We see this with couples too, right? When when um, if one person, it's very easy for a couple to experience a desire discrepancy. You right. know, like one person is more taking the lead, wants a bit more frequency, wants a bit more adventure, and the other either wants less frequency or a bit more vanilla sexual experiences. And then in that, in the space of that difference or that discrepancy, it's so easy to start telling stories about you are too much this, well, you're not enough this. And, right. um and again, it's like that positionality of um, of who do I fear? Who do I fear I'm becoming in this story? Um, then cuts us off from being able to be emotionally vulnerable, connected to our partner, 
working on it as a team, kind of finding a path forward that's a bit more authentic. So how, so how do you navigate the differences? I mean, because I think this is a big, uh, this is a big part of why so many people have these issues because, you know, somebody can show up and say, well, I need this, I need this. And it's like, well, is it really a need or is it just a desire, something that you want to explore? I mean, how do, how do people come to some sort of agreement on how they're going to explore together? Right. Right. I do think a big part of it is what we're talking about today. What the taking sexy back book is about is it is, I think it's easier to have this conversation as a couple. If each partner is grounded in their own sexual Mm self-awareness, right? That's, the conversation is going to be able to go further together if each person has done some deep dive into self about their own understanding their own sexual story. And so that's, that's really essential. And so um, I oftentimes want, so when a couple hits a sexual block, like let's just stay on the um, desire discrepancy example, because it's such a, it's such a common one yeah, for couples. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want sometimes for that couple just to press pause and for each person to do a bit of internal work. Because I think what happens is the lower, the lower desire person can start to feel flooded with either shame, shame. what's wrong shame. with me, yeah. I'm so, I'm so um, whatever, prudish, or I'm, something's wrong with me, or then if they're a survivor of trauma, then it becomes like my trauma broke me. It can become all of these like layers of shame and inadequacy and oftentimes fear. If I don't give this to my partner, they're going to go find somebody else. Right. And so all of that fear then keeps the lower desire partner focused on the other guy, their judgment. What are they going to do next? And what I want the lower desire person to be able to do is have some space to go inside and figure out what are the blocks, what keeps what keeps me from being able to tap into my erotic self, express my erotic self, ask for what I want, like where are my blocks? And that process is really hard to do with either an, you know, an anxious partner, an impatient partner, mm-hmm. or even a partner who's loving, who's just saying, babe, like whatever you want, I will do. Even if the partner is loving, that question can still feel like a pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that lower desire person might do is just say, like, I just need a bit of time and space to just work, figure out me, you know, and whether that's, I think the book can be helpful. I think obviously therapy can be helpful and then just start to kind of look and the reason in the book, we do these like seven, we look through seven different lenses. Yeah. I was going to ask him tell you, yeah, yeah, just talk about that. What are the seven different lenses? Yeah. Because that's part of the integrative whole. Right. Because I think that those, the constraints or the blocks to sexual desire, to feeling entitled to sexual pleasure, the blocks can live in a, in one or more different places. So I want, so I, I really wanted the structure of the book to invite people into a variety of lenses to figure out where, where, where do I need some healing? Where is some attention warranted? And so you want to talk a little bit about the seven areas, you know, sort of give a, give a guideline of, you know, the different ways that people can look at where they might be blocked. Yep. Yep. And then let's make sure that we come back to talking about the higher desire person as well, because sometimes, because it's not just bringing the lower desire person up, it's also helping the higher desire person maybe have some some more pathways into feeling love, feeling connected, feeling safe, feeling playful, feeling joyful. You know, they may need a bit more gateways into that. So, but I think oftentimes in this conversation, we talk about like how to help the person have more desire, but it also is sometimes just helping the higher desire person have more ways of regulating and connecting themselves. Yeah. Um, So yeah, so our seven... Our seven different frames are cultural, so really taking a thoughtful look at how gendered narratives get in the way. Mm-hmm. And that's true whether you've been socialized in the masculine or socialized in the feminine, but those stories about who I need to be, who I should be, who I can't be, that can create 
sexual disconnection, pressure, performance, duty, loads, all those kinds of things. Um, we talk about mental, as we were saying before, sort of all the chatter that can come into the bedroom yeah. with us, self-critical thoughts, um, performance-based thoughts. So noticing where the mind goes can be really, really essential for healing. Um, emotional, this is where we talk about kind of the ways in which prior painful sexual experiences may show up in the bedroom with us and how mm -hmm. to turn towards those, how to invite our partner to be our ally in healing. Mm -hmm. So often survivors of traumas feel like they have to figure this all out on their own and they can't burden their partner with it. And mm -hmm. so in that part of the book, we talk about how beautiful it is when, when sex becomes a space of healing, right? yeah. sexual healing. And yeah. How Love that Marvin Gaye song, by the way. That was that was a deep song in so many ways. Sexual <laughs> healing is a real thing, and it is in some ways. In some ways, that is when a survivor of trauma is able to enlist their partner as an ally in their healing. It is the most powerful way to say that my, you don't, you person who hurt me, you don't get to keep this part of me. Yeah. this is mine. It was yeah. mine. You hurt this. You did not break this. Like yes. my sexual self is bigger and stronger than you ever get to be. It's Amen, so, sister. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Yeah. But it requires us to be able to have a partner who can who can hold space for that. Yeah. Who can listen, you know, just so who can be part um, of the conduit of healing. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By not getting lost in their own stories. By honoring whatever kinds of um, supports need to happen, right? Whether we need to keep the lights on for a while, whether we need to um, go slowly, whether we, you know, whatever those kinds of setting the space, mm -hmm. you know, basically the goal is to set the space in such a way that we maximize presence and we minimize dissociation. Yeah. It's really, like, that's, it's, it's, I feel like, like that partner has to be really gentle mm -hmm. and and asking permission every single step of the way yep yep and just and that and that that survivor gets to gets to speak up gets to say yes or no yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um and we also do um we talk about another realm is physical so here's where we talk about the impact of um, body image challenges and what it is, all the messages we've internalized uh, about what our bodies need to look like and how that may get in the way. And then just body image in terms of, as we were saying before, getting a mirror out, understanding our own anatomy. Mm -hmm. um, Self-exploration yeah. is a wonderful thing. Yeah, so we call that chapter couples therapy for you and your vulva. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and relational so there here is where we talk about talking about sex with a partner and I've got a whole list of suggestions for sort of scaffolding that conversation mm -hmm. which can be hard because it can be hard which um, and then spiritual for some for some people there is um, there are spiritual constraints where just that first experience of God sex and shame like sort of the unholy trinity of God sex and shame mm -hmm. and how to name that acknowledge that that was a part of my past but actually now i'm going to recreate and i'm going to actually treat sex as a, a pathway towards spirituality towards oneness towards um consciousness which there are beautiful right that's the entire nature of tantra is yeah. the idea that actually sexuality and spirituality have a beautiful relationship with each other through a different lens right through the lens of very traditional religion oftentimes sex and spirituality have a fraught relationship but it, it, it isn't the only lens there are practices where sex and spirit actually each each amplifies the other well i i always wonder you know because oftentimes in the throes of uh ecstasy you know people say oh god oh god you know and 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 i and i feel like this for for me, you know, from my perspective, I have always felt like sexuality is a sacred experience. You know, it's showing up fully 
open and present and vulnerable with my heart and soul and body mm-hmm. and meeting my partner and seeing my partner in the sa- in the same way you know not just for the sex but the whole exchange of energy mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so it can be if you show up consciously this the holy trinity the beautiful holy trinity of god you know myself and my partner um having this beautiful exchange and really deeply seeing into each other's hearts and souls mm-hmm. beautiful yep that's beautiful yes and it's and it is um yeah it's unfortunate then when the when the echoes are that what I'm doing is sinful or wrong or against God. Was that a process for you? Cause you've mentioned before that you grew up Catholic. So what, what was your process of shifting from that prior mindset to the one that you have now? Well, I, I actually, um, I actually never thought about sex with a, my partner as shameful. Uh-huh. I always thought that that was a beautiful expression of who I am but it's all the other mixed messages, you mm-hmm. know, of how do I show up? Um, how do I sh- show up and claim my sexuality? I mean, this is why your book is so great. You're sexy. Mm-hmm. 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 Who, who is my sexy? Who is yeah. she? Yeah. Who yeah. is she? And, and that's why I, um, because I also heard you say <clears throat> after the Super Bowl about the whole judgments of Shakira and JLo. And, and when I see them, I mean, I don't know if it has to do because I'm a dancer and this is one of the ways actually where I feel most sexually expressed when I'm dancing because I'm completely present and in my body and I'm not really paying attention to anything else that's going on around me. Yeah. But I did like, even, even at that Super Bowl thing, um, my, my daughter had some friends and, um, and I was going on a disco cruise and I had bought these really sexy outfits that one of them was kind of similar to what JLo was. I went and put it on and my kids are like, you're too old for that. (laughs) And it was like this, I, I think JLo and Shakira did an amazing job of showing up. It doesn't matter what culture they come from. It's the celebration of women, women's sexuality. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So beautiful and powerful. Yes, that's right. That's right. And it was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was like such divine timing that that halftime show was like the day before the book (laughs) came out. And so it meant that I got to in my in the TV the stuff that I had done that week like that topic came up like so what about <laughs> okay let's break this one down because it was as you're saying it it's it was all the reactions around their mothers they shouldn't they're over 40 they shouldn't you know there is this is a family show they should all of these judgments which are always invitations then to look at our own, like whenever we make that judgment, it's an invitation to look at what is the story that I'm bringing into this lens, right? So your kids, I mean, you're, you walking into the family room with a sexy outfit on and them saying, mom, you're too old. It's an invitation for them. It, they're not going to take you up on, they're right. not going to do it now. But I hope that when they are themselves in midlife, that they will, you know, remember, Yes, that's right. And feel pissy about their adolescent self that couldn't hold on to this idea that you could be at midlife and, you know, and sexual and celebrating that. Yeah. I mean, all their, all my daughter's friends were like, oh my God, you look amazing. Of course. You know, but my kids were like, ew, that's disgusting. Right. right. We can't reconcile that with our parents, you know, that our parents are sexual selves. That's right. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, none of us really want to think about our parents as sexual beings. But how fun that they're fr- that they got to at least hear their friends celebrating you. I mean, do do you do you find that with your own kids that you can talk to your kids' friends about all of this stuff, and your parents are like, "Oh God, here she goes again." Yeah, we. It's you know, I think people make assumptions that we must have just kind of like all these conversations in our house. And I think our house looks. I think I certainly open the door. To those uh-huh. conversations and I I do what my 
when I was in graduate school, my, I had a mentor who talked about, she would do these truth bombs and she would say to her kids, okay guys, truth bomb, like I'm going to talk to you for a minute about whatever, some aspect of sex that she wanted to talk to her kids about. Uh-huh. And it was always, she would do it in the car, you know, so you're not making direct eye contact. Uh-huh. And then she would say, if you have questions, you can ask me questions. And so that's how we've done it in our house. But yeah, I don't know that our kids have any wider zone of tolerance for these conversations than anybody else's kids just because, but they, but they know that they can. And I hope that as they evolve and, um, you know, and start to have relationships, I hope that we will feel safe to approach, but, but yes. So our, our daughter never shared She's like, I'm not going to tell anybody about your TED talk, but some of her friends found out anyways. And the friends were like, your mom's TED talk was so cool. And, you know, so they could say it was cool, but she was never like, you know, she's not, she's not actively ashamed of me, which is good. I think that's yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> she's just not shouting it from the rooftops. <laughs> so how do we learn to celebrate our sexuality? Because I think this is, you know, this is where the book is leading all of us. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we start by, we, we can celebrate it. We can celebrate our sexuality by allowing our sexuality to just be as it is, right? Without saying that my sexuality has to be Shakira or JLo or a porn star or this or that by just starting quiet, right? Starting quiet and listening. I think we celebrate our sexuality by going back to our senses, right? Really mm-hmm. like creating, um, time and space for honoring our senses because our the erotic is cued by the senses right and ignited by the senses and so however that looks whatever helps us feel alive and passionate and and sensual like connected to the five senses whether that's for you it's dance for me dance as well is huge. I danced a lot when I, I would get ready to sit down and write. I would do a little dance party first because uh-huh. because that's how I, that connects me to my erotic self, my passion, my yeah. aliveness yeah, for sure. And um, in the book I wrote about like celebrating our sexuality by not being afraid of being greedy. I think so much of the feminine is about making sure there's enough for everybody else. Giving, giving, giving. Yes, everybody else first, controlling our appetites of all kinds. And so there's something about the celebration of sexuality, which is the celebration of greediness, of hunger, of longing. And so it's a really different way to position ourselves around greediness, right? Where usually we're sort of like, oh, no, no, I have to kind of tamp this down. No, I want us to have partners who can, who can expand with us and be like, okay, like, let's have you get bigger. Let's have, I'm not afraid of your big hungry desire, your big loud orgasm, whatever that looks like. Right. So that permission to just fill a space up, I think is how we celebrate our sexuality as well. I actually bookmarked that page. Can I read it? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, That was really important. I thought, I'm really glad you brought that up, Alexandra. Hold on. Yeah. Okay. Um, because because Esther Perel, whom we both love and adore, yes. Uh, yes. she says, you know, sex isn't what we do; it's a place we go. Mm. Right. Love that. So, yes. so this is from your book, Alexandra. Pleasure is, by its very nature, hungry, unruly, and selfish. Seeking pleasure begins with a sense that you are entitled to it that you are worthy by nature of your mere existence of feeling good. Sexual pleasure is about, is about being, not doing, receiving, not giving, present moment, focus, not accomplishment. That's <laughs> powerful. And it's so, in that way, pleasure is subversive, right? It subverts a lot of who we've been taught we should be. Uh huh. So that connecting, this is this is it. It's it's your whole connection to your entire self, mm-hmm. your connection to your body, your connection to your um, mind. You know, like the chatter, like getting rid of the chatter, 
whatever's preventing you or blocking you from receiving that pleasure. Um, Because pleasure is both giving and receiving. But I think so many times as women, we were taught to give. So it's like, I am allowed to receive. My body was built to receive. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. My body was built to receive and my clitoris was put in my body only for pleasure. No other job. No that other part job. of your body has nothing else it's got to think about. Nothing else. So if I was created in this way, then I should be able to fully honor that. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Fully, completely honor that. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And and there are ways in which the more we the the more we continue in the cycle of I shouldn't, I can't, mm-hmm. good girls don't, then the more we teach our the more we sort of abandon our own bodies, we abandon our own truths, and um, and it can be hard. I think sometimes when we are aware of how much we've allowed ourselves to be disconnected, mm-hmm. just facing that can be really mm-hmm. freaking painful. We, my, the team that I wrote this book with, my graduate students and undergraduate students that were on my team with me, we spent a lot of time in our meetings feeling mad and feeling sad. Yes. Yes, I'm sure. And so that's a part of it, right? We, you, can't, you can't get to the reclamation until you move through the fucking a yeah exactly all of the times that i was like no no no, it's okay you just go ahead or that's taking yeah. too long or no no, no don't, don't go down on me i'll go down you know all the ways in which we just have had the experience of watching ourselves abandon ourselves we yeah. have to hold it with such self-compassion because you came you came by every ounce of your self-abandonment honestly because you grew up in a world that taught you self-abandon mm-hmm. and you got to grieve it and feel pissed about it to find your way back home really mm-hmm. well and that and that's that actually as you know anger is usually the tip of the iceberg as well yeah 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 right so it's it's i'm angry that whatever and i'm frustrated about whatever and i'm sad about yeah. whatever and i'm afraid mm-hmm. i'm sad i'm afraid I'm feeling lonely and rejected and abandoned, you know? And so how do we as women and we as all people um, learn to show up for ourselves? Yeah. Because it's not about waiting for somebody else to not abandon us or not reject us. Mm -hmm. It's about how we can not reject ourselves and not abandon ourselves and come into this full sense of, acceptance of where I am Mm -hmm. in whatever moment I show up, you know, Mm -hmm. however I show up. Yep. 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 You know, the last, the last piece about reclaiming our sexuality, I think is also making space for the ebbs and flows, you know, and I'm I'm aware that we're having this, we're having this conversation, you know, mid pandemic and there, there are ways in which, uh, you know, this pandemic leaves nothing untouched, including our sex lives and our sexual, yeah. whether we're well, some, some people leave it untouched during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody is touching anything. right? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's part of it too, right? Sometimes reclaiming sexuality is saying like, okay, right now it is not I, whatever, whatever. And I, I surveyed my Instagram audience a couple of weeks ago, you know, and there's, you only have a binary choice on an Instagram survey, but it was sort of like feeling frisky or erotic nosedive. And my audience was in a 40-60 split. There were 40% were feeling frisky and 60% were erotic nosedive. And so I think that right there is like, okay, so your sexy is doing something and whatever it's doing, just honor it in the moment, right? I think it can, you know, whether it's feeling like I really want to, you know, I think it's the situation, it depends on whether we have a partner available, certainly. Um, but if I, have a, if I have a partner available and I'm wanting more sex because it is respite, escape, you know, a port in a storm, fine. If I have a partner available, but I'm really not wanting it because I feel overburdened, afraid, you know, whatever. That, that is just so honoring that versus 
shaming ourselves or feeling badly about ourselves is another way that we reclaim our sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, and even in the ways that we show up, you know, for our sexuality, it's like, you know, am I feeling this is part of honoring what's right for your body and your senses in the moment? You know, sometimes I just want to be tender and cuddled and, you know, comforted and have this, you know, intimate mm-hmm. connection. And other times I just want it. Right. <laughs> you know, right. I want to show up in its full power and passion. Yeah. And, you know, so that's where the ebbs and flows happen. And, um, how do you know until you show up? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. That's right. Yep. And how do you navigate when you show up in a certain way and your partner shows up in a different way, wanting something different? <laughs> it is, yeah, it is just, it, we need a healthy dose of humor. For all. I mean, that's right. Long-term, I mean, I think long-term sexual monogamy is just hilarious in a lot of ways, right? Like, Okay, what? Where are we now? And what's? Where are we next week? And uh huh, uh huh. <laughs> yep. I can't think about next week because I still don't even know what's now. Right. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so what do you hope to teach your kids about sexuality? I mean, everything we just talked about. Every everything we just talked about. I. I want my son to feel comfortable being tender and vulnerable. And I want my daughter to feel comfortable being empowered and boundaried. I want them both to feel, I think that's the saddest part of gender role messages is that we, you know, cut each gender off of half of the full spectrum of human experiences. And so I want to make sure that, that each you know, having a son and a daughter, that they each feel able to access the full range of um, of who they are as people, and um, the full range of of what they would be seeking in sexual connection. Yes, you talk about agency and communion. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That it's interesting how that that part of the book has really stuck out to people as being. Um, a helpful framework, right? So rather, I think we some we sometimes talk ourselves into corners when we talk about like the masculine and the feminine. It just becomes problematic. It's it becomes really heteronormative. Mm-hmm. And so being able to frame it as agency and communion as these, they're both they're just different ways of being in the world. And there are beautiful gifts in agency in articulating your needs of, of being powerful of taking leadership. And there are beautiful gifts in communion being tender, taking care, reading, reading the room, taking, you know, making sure everyone is accounted for. There are beautiful lessons in both of those. And, and we need both of those in a sexual experience. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too, because, you know, for lifetimes we have been polarized into this version of feminine and masculine that really they're just human qualities Mm-hmm. you know, that we have disassociated from parts of ourselves. And so I feel like a big part of this work and what you're trying to do as well is really bring them into communion and fully integrated all mm-hmm. of these aspects of ourself and acknowledging that they flow. Right. You know, it's right. not either or, it's not black and white, it's not good or bad. Yep. Yep. I, um, this afternoon I have my, I'm, I'm teaching a hundred undergraduate students right now at Northwestern, my marriage 101 class. And this week we're um, talking about sex. And so I'm aware that in a couple hours I'll be giving a lecture on Zoom all about sex. And there are ways in which this generation is so, they're just leaps and bounds around, they, they have really broken so many barriers and so many binaries around gender and mm-hmm. sex. It's beautiful around gender. Um, and they're such strong advocates and allies for each other. It's really beautiful to see. And that, that is true. And I think when it comes to like intimate justice, like sort of um, voice in the bedroom, um, power in the bedroom, I think that's sort of like the final frontier for this generation. I think there still are like growing edges for many of the, many of them um, around like healing and integrating like the, how all of that stuff plays out sexually. I think they they are strong around looking at 
um, they can they can name gender patterns, they can see them as problematic. It just is again like when it comes to sex, it's it's just hard. It's just a hard, a challenging realm. And I don't think they're any better prepared around sex education. Um, no, they're not. You know, uh, I think what's different is I, many of them have family. Well, I think some of them had families where families tried to at least break the messaging, you know, as you're doing with your kids, who are doing with our kids. Um, but we still live in this, in this sort of big, you know, stew of inadequate American sex education. They've grown up with, with porn in a very different way than yeah, you oof. and I grew up with porn. So. Yeah. I don't think it's healthy. <laughs> it's very unrealistic. Certainly not for sex education. No. And for just having conscious sex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Being concerned about a connection versus a performance. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think that is, that's the, the biggest impact. I'm actually working right now with an undergraduate student on her honors thesis where she's looking at queer students, sex education and pornography. And she's got really interesting mm. findings around where queer students will report that actually porn was really helpful because their sex, sex education was completely not inclusive of yeah. queer sexuality. So at least porn showed images of like you, what you want is valid. What you want makes sense. You're not the only one who has the desires that you have. Mm -hmm. And at the very same time, porn was problematic because it showed really unrealistic, really quite intimidating images of what sex should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I love that you are taking sexy from an adjective into a noun because this, because this is, you know, as a, as a woman, you know, I, I have all of these messages, like I have to be sexy in order to be validated as a woman. And, and, um, and I really feel like F you, <laughs> I don't have to be anything. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It's not my job to perform for you. Mm -hmm. It's my job to just be who I am, mm -hmm. however I show up. Yep. And so this is why your work is so amazing. Mm -hmm. Your Loving Bravely book. I mean, I told you, I told you that I, that Costco guy that I told, <laughs> that Costco worker that I told about your book, Loving Bravely, mm -hmm. um, should be a guidebook to figure out how to love because you go through, you unpack all of the messages that you received, um, you know, growing up on how to love and be loving in a relationship. And I, and I think that this book, Taking Sexy Back, is the same way of how to reclaim your sexuality based on unpacking all of the things that you learned growing up. So, I mean, for me, like I want my kids and all my friends' kids and, um, any part, you know, any future partner that I have to really use your books as a tool for self-exploration and um, self-discovery and just really under self-understanding and self-acceptance and self-honoring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's where intimacy begins, right? I can't yeah. offer something to you that I don't feel really connected to myself. I yeah. really can't. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me into this conversation and um, for celebrating the feminine with me. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, every, every time you posted a quote, I was like, yes, every, you know, <laughs> like all of the things I just resonate so deeply with what you have to say. So um, okay, so my last question that I always ask my guests is, how do you define real love? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Real love is showing up. It's showing up um, not, you know, with, without your filter, without, it's also showing up without expectation. Mm -hmm. um, it's showing up with a willingness to understand that my experience of you is always going to be framed through my lenses. I don't think we ever show up lens free. 
but I think we can show up with increasing willingness to say, okay, when you said that, here's the story I was telling myself, or when, you know, here's my, here's the fear that I'm bringing to the table, or here's what I'm at risk of doing right now. I think that's what real love is, is just knowing that we are accepting that we're works in progress. And the best we can do is just kind of stay engaged in the mystery. Oh, that's a beautiful way to put it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so for all of my listeners, I know you will have gotten so much out of this conversation. Uh, so please subscribe to the Wake Up to Real Love podcast. Um, and Alexandra, how can people uh, get in touch with you? How can people find you? Mm-hmm. My website is dralexandrasolomon.com. Um, and then that will have links to all my social media. I, we do a monthly newsletter with sort of upcoming events and happenings. And um, your, I'm book, active. your book club on Facebook. Yeah, we, we have a free book club. Yeah, just a Facebook community where we're going through Taking Sexy Back week by week. We went through Loving Bravely. Um, sorry, month by month. I, it's, I go live monthly. And um, and it's a, a great yeah Facebook community is another way. And I'm on Instagram quite a bit. And then the books are available wherever books are sold, Amazon, indie booksellers, Barnes and Noble, all the places. And you're going to be participating in the Real Love Ready Summit? That's really exciting. Yes. Real Love Ready Summit starts pretty soon. It's six weeks. You have a, you get a thought leader each week and you've got daily content and it culminates in a keynote and a Q&A. And so I am week six of the summit. So um, mid June, June 18th. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It actually starts on Thursday. So I'm excited about that. Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and I mean, this, this is what I say at the end of every podcast, the most important relationship you'll ever have is the one you have with yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's Beautiful. what your, that's what your book does. Yeah. So I really honor and appreciate all that, that you're doing, how you're showing up in the world. And sharing to help people come to this place of acceptance and love and honor of themselves so that they can give it to each other. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. So, and if uh, anybody wants to work with me on how to create more real love in your life, um, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at the awakening with Dawn. So Alexandra, you're beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you so you much like for that. being here. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Good to be with you. All right, uh, listeners, every day, wake up to more real love. Take care. We'll see you next time. Bye.